Well, Mary's covered a little bit that I wanted to, so that gives me about a minute because she's amplified something that I didn't think I'd have time for, so that was great. Um, now, I'd also like to start by thanking Terry and Francis and Gerard for asking me from the commercial world to um, take part in this project. Um, it was something I absolutely jumped at, apart from the fact that I felt Golden Summers left a lot of unfinished business and there's been so much done since that needed to be done. I personally felt that New South Wales and the, the Hawkesbury, which was such an important bit of um, the story, got really short shrift because we had no money to go there. We virtually had no money to go to Sydney and we were all based in Melbourne. So this was something I personally was pleased to do. And the other thing was I just love Purple Noon's transparent might. I hope will come up now. And the opportunity to look in such detail at a picture which superficially is so familiar um, was a wonderful thing. I wanted to know more about the place. The painting was familiar, but not the place to me. I knew Condor and others had painted there earlier than Streeton, and um, I'd always been intri intrigued by this great square window-like format, which is you see again in Streeton, but you actually don't see very much anywhere else in Australian art. It's hung in the gallery since it was painted, and um, aspects of it had been researched, but not as much. And still, um, as you'll see as I speak, there's a lot more um, to discover. It also sums up a lot of the complexities about Streeton. His extraordinary romantic street, which we've heard of in great detail from Michael, his love of literature and poetry, his ambition, the size and the um, drama of it, his raw talent that Mary's just spoken of, and his extraordinary intuitive rather than overtrained originality. It was one of the largest canvases up to its date, 1896, that he'd completed almost entirely on the spot, um, and he laid great store by that. Um, and its long title, as uh, you probably know having seen the exhibition, was inspired by a line from English romantic poetry, from a poem about Naples, in fact. He later remembered working, and I quote, in a kind of artistic intoxication with thoughts of Shelley in my mind. Now, Oliver Streeton very kindly gave me a copy of Streeton's own unpublished manuscript account of this 1896 Hawkesbury painting trip, and specifically an account of painting Purple Noon. And I think I might read you a bit of it, because it really, it's his own words, even though written a couple of decades later, and because he's such a storyteller, and because of the way, as you saw in the letter um, that Mary showed, the... Um, no, that Michael showed, I'm sorry, um, the way he would um, embellish with drama and drawings, the theatrical way, and the memoir is quite similar in the way it sets a picture. So I'll, I'll read a bit of it. The clear waters of the Hawkesbury River flowed smoothly round its sandbanks and river oaks, and the Currajong Heights were glowing in evening light as I arrived at Stevenson's Hotel from Sydney. you remember he'd been living in Sydney since 1892. I heard a grumbling voice behind me and on turning saw that a gaunt giant seated on his haunches was pointing at my light flannel suit, Panama hat and brown boots and he mumbled with a suggestion of temper or complaint. Not understanding his expressions, I turned to the bar and inquired for the nearest telegraph office for I wished to telegraph for my luggage and my painting materials. 
The giant crept into the bar after me like a threatening dog and was ordered out by the landlord, but not before I'd observed his dusty appearance and the strength of his arms and chest. Saliva dripped from his pipe-laden mouth and his pale eyes stared menacingly through and beyond me. I was informed later by Clary Pitt and his brothers, of whom more later, that Ned Hogan couldn't bear the toff from Sydney with his lordly airs and his inquiries for telegraph officers, etc., and also that Ned, having imitated in pantomime my arrival at the hotel, had sworn to do me in. Two days later, attired in my old clothes, not the Panama hat, a battered hat, black boots, I hoisted myself upon a borrowed horse, my canvas Four feet square hung upon my back. My pallet, billy of water, paint bag and lunch were tied and strung about the bodies of the horse and myself. And so I rode to my painting ground on the terrace, three miles distant, three miles from the hotel, and I arrived in a very dusty condition. The glory of the river and the plain spread before me in a temperature of over 100 degrees and rising. The view being partly obscured by two saplings, I was compelled to place my canvas on the edge of the precipitous cliff. Far below were the tops of river oaks and water with the blue of a black opal, the brightness of noon, the power of deep blue, the flies, the temperature now 108 degrees, which is 42 degrees centigrade. Brought me to I designed my picture in cobalt and red. My back was smarting under the sun. I sang aloud and cursed the flies, the atmosphere higher than my own. I paused and found that in two hours, two-thirds of my canvas were covered in paint. I had stamped my impression upon it. I had made my picture. Faint with hunger, and that was not the whole picture. Two-thirds, remember. Faint with hunger, heat and thirst, I turned to look for shade and suddenly I saw a man approaching down the hillside. Slowly he came, his boots crushing dry twigs, his eyes intent on me and in his hand a big axe, Ned Hogan. My palate twisted with heat, burned above my sunburnt arm as I watched him sit quietly five feet above me on the hillside. A hasty glance down the precipice. I felt in peril for my life. The bright steel of the axe shone in the sunlight. Not a sound disturbed the awful stillness of the hillside. Not a blur on the electric brightness around me. We were alone. How are you this morning, Ned? Yes. I'm painting the Hawkesbury River. Yes. Have a pipe, Ned. I threw my plug of Lucy Hinton. He caught it with his pale eyes still piercing through me and the horizon. The strain and the heat became unbearable, so I ventured, What about some tea, Ned? Yes. Keeping an eye on his hands and the axe, I put down the pallet and drawing the billy of water from under some leaves, soon had a fire under it. All at once he noticed the sunburn on my arms and he began, By cripes it's warm. Ain't them trees in your way? I said, Yes, they are. They spoil the view. He advanced to the trees, and I cautiously mounted to the shade above him. His axe arose with mighty sweeps, and with a few blows, the trees crashed down the precipice and unveiled the perfect view of the expanse before us. <laughs> then we had tea and sandwiches, and feeling quite brave in my camouflage of dusty old clothes, I said, Tell me about that toff from Sydney, Ned. Who is he? What's he like? Ah, him. That fella Scott by cripes. And he stood up and he acted the bar scene for my benefit. 
He then cut four saplings and digging holes with the axe made a firm support for a roof of green saplings and boughs and thus provided me with a cool shed under which to continue my work. He then volunteered to go down to Yarramundi and buy me a horse for 30 shillings and with cheery words for me and awful threats for the Sydney Toff, he left me to my painting. <laughs> this is Ned Hogan and obviously painted after all that. I think he's in his Sunday best and um, when Streeton had calmed down about the threat, he concluded, and I'll finish up quickly, the horse he bought me was most useful in conveying me to and from my work, cost me nothing to keep and eventually sold for a pound. And the road mender, Ned Hogan, strong as a horse, half-witted and gentle though boastful in his cups, was my most devoted friend and assistant in painting the picture called The Purple Noon's Transparent March. Now whilst this account is wonderfully evocative and the business about the shelter that Ned Hogan uh, built was um, confirmed by another artist, one of those illustrators, Souter, who went up there a bit later and found it with, with palette knife marks but unfortunately didn't take a photo that we know of. Um, it does tell us a lot about Streeton's painting process. It certainly opens up a lot that Michael could query and we've tried a little bit superficially. Um, it raises a lot of questions. I wanted to know why he'd chosen Richmond and the Hawkesbury. Roberts had gone out to find shearing sheds and things, but he went to find a river. When did he first go there? Was this his first trip? And exactly when was he there during 1896? And who, besides Ned Hogan, did he meet there? How do his various views of the river in different lights and from different viewpoints, which occupy a whole room in the show, relate to each other in terms of topography? And why is the painting Purple Noon's Transparent Might such an unforgettable image and still so powerful even when it's so familiar in reproduction? Also, what did he paint up there besides the river itself? As you, now, as you know, Streeton had already travelled out of Sydney to the Blue Mountains, so a little bit further, to paint fires on, and they had been purchased by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. He wanted to produce more important museum-quality works, and he was also hoping to save up money to travel to Europe. The fellow who'd um, coined the name so carelessly, the Heidelberg School, had said he should travel in Paris, and of course travel to Paris and study, and of course Condé had just left. He told Tom Roberts in a letter that he wanted to work on bigger, more serious things. I want to be painting every day and have the serious matter of art in front of me. And in another letter he wrote, while Roberts was travelling around inland, that he wanted to go straight inland, away from all polite society, and try and translate some of the great hidden poetry that I know is here, but have not yet seen or felt. Streeton's choice of the upper reaches of the Hawkesbury as a destination in 1896 was both inspired and pragmatic. He could get to Windsor and Richmond easily by train. It was less than two hours' journey, and in fact there were commuters even then. The river at that point was absolutely spectacular. It was surrounded by fertile plains that had been farmed since the earliest days of European settlement, but it was still wide and expansive and had an untrammeled um, air. This would be a subject that his audiences would recognise instantly. Um, it would engage their hearts and minds as, as a cradle of New South Wales civilisation, but it was also something that an inspired, ambitious and original artist could present in an entirely new way. 
Street and conjures up a rather fabulous dusty Wild West scenario in his encounter in arriving uh, in North Richmond and meeting Ned Hogan. But in fact, this, as I say, was one of the earliest settled uh, areas and farmed since earliest settlement. It had first been explored by Governor Philip in 1789 when the fledgling convict colony was very short of food and they were looking for good farmland. And um, by chance, when Terry asked me to do this essay, I was actually, um, or the essay for the catalogue, I was reading uh, Kate Grenville's The Secret River and was immediately able to see just how early uh, settlement and, and a really vivid picture of the early settlement of the area. As early as the 1820s, a Sydney newspaper, the Gazette, had extolled the Hawkesbury's tourism potential and had singled out the terrace the rise from which street and painted purple noon as the most enchanting prospect that can be possibly seen in any part of New South Wales. So it wasn't an accident, I don't think, that Streeton went to the terrace and found all this spread before him. In fact, by the 1890s, by which time most of the busy river traffic that you read about in Cape Grenville, for example, the uh, farming produce being taken down to Sydney had all been done by river, but by the 1880s and 90s, the railways had replaced it. And um, the Richmond and Windsor were honeymooner towns to a degree and popular with even day trippers. Um, that's therefore, I think, street and to a degree, like Roberts painting the shearing, was consciously painting history as well as painting, obviously, spectacular landscape. He stayed at the Traveller's Rest Hotel at North Richmond. You remember in his um, account, or you may, he called it Stevenson's Hotel, and that's because the friendly landlord's name was Harry Stevenson. The Scottish-born artist and illustrator named D.H. Souter, the one who went and actually found the... Um, shady cabin thing, um, was also there with Conda in the 1880s um, and wrote that the Traveller's Rest was, I quote, a democratic house of call. Over the years, all the principal painters, Street and Roberts, Fullwood, Lambert, Long, Minns and others, stopped at this pub when they came down to paint along the Hawkesbury. And it's interesting, uh, one of the others that went there was Spence, and um, a number of others who were from that illustrator circle that Mary spoke about. Minns, of course, was. Lambert was working as an illustrator when he was there in 1898. Streeton's painting of the uh, hotel is a side view with these gorgeous little dormer windows up at the top and a dovecot in the back garden and a young lady um, on, the, on the veranda. The... Uh, the front faced Bell's line of road. This is the front slightly later, I think, about 1900. Um, it was built in 1836 as a, a stopping point for the bullock drays and so on going through to the Blue Mountains, um, and it was called the Traveller's Rest in the 1890s. It's now apparently a car park. Um, it, it lasted, I think, till the 1970s, but... Um Unfortunately, no letters from Streeton are known to survive from his time at the Hawkesbury in 1896. It's possible that if he wrote anything, it's now lost. It's also possible he didn't write a great deal because he was only two hours from Sydney. He might have written to McCubbin, but he probably might have written to McCubbin when he was back in Sydney, not when he was out so busy painting. And Roberts, of course, was on the road. Mary Eagles suggested that he was um, recovering from another failed romance, not Florrie Walker, uh, the year before. 
and he certainly was he was he he enjoyed to be alone for a while i think um he had that romantic streak of um romantic solitude and in almost all his hawkesbury paintings there's very little human figure if, if at all the little girl here is is about as big as most of them get now, William Moore, the historian, the first historian of Australian art in the 1930s, states that Streeton didn't go to Richmond before 1896. And Streeton was still around to ask. So, um, however, I think he had already been, been there at least once. This little painting, the hillside, um, is almost certainly a Hawkesbury subject, although I suppose it doesn't have to be. And it's dated December 1895. And, of course, he could easily have been up just for the day by train. A lot of his friends went up during the 1890s. Henry Forwood was up and down in 1890, 91, I think, and again in 94. So there's nothing to have stopped that Streeton went out and checked out the landscape, even if he didn't stay there. The fact that he had a four-foot square canvas ready to send up by train and ready to sling on his horse suggests to me that he had seen that view and um, thought about it for some time before he saw the glory and, of the river and plain spread before him. Um, this picture also, interestingly, was owned by um, Vic Mann, who had worked with um, Condor on the Hawkesbury and who, by the 1890s, was one of Streeton and Roberts's pupils in Sydney. Now, this is a slightly mysterious photograph of the river, which... Um, we, we need public help on this. Oliver Streeton found it among his grandfather's papers and gave it to Terry Lane. Um, it's folded, and Oliver has suggested that it might have been in Streeton's wallet and was something, you know, he kept close to him. And there was a suggestion, you know, this was exactly the view, um, and it is the topography of Purple Noon, but it's not from 1896. It, it, it wasn't a flood year, and this is the the river in flood. 1890, 91, 94 and 95 were all moderate to serious flood years in Windsor and Richmond but not 1896 and I would like to speculate that Forward might have brought it back in 1894 or 5 or 1 or that the Pitt family who I mentioned before Clary Pitt and I'll go on with a bit more many of whom were photographers might have given it to him but we just don't know. He also went back in about 1940, I think, so it's possible it's as late as that. We need actually, a, um, I'm not sure whether Terry's had a photography expert look at the actual paper. In Purple Noon, you can see that by contrast with the photograph, the sandbars that were usually um, there all year are quite evident. The river was really silted up by this time, and because the river traffic was so uh, minimal compared to what it had been, it, it was more or less left by there like that, and that was because of um, successive floods. Large vessels actually couldn't get up as far as Windsor. Streeton was certainly there at the height of summer. We know from the 100 and the 108 degrees and so on. He was there in January and or February 1896. According to the Weather Bureau, the rainiest day in Richmond that summer was the 20th and the hottest was the 13th. It got to 42.5 degrees, so just over 108. As we'll see in some of the smaller Hawkesbury pictures, he also went back in autumn in 1896, probably April and May, Mary has done a lot of looking at um, the minute books of the Society of Artists to see when he was away for extended periods. Of course, he could have gone for short periods. I was very grateful for her 
um, giving me those dates. But April and May, he certainly could have been there. But he would have returned to the camp, the Curlew camp, and his Sydney studio where he had his pupils, as I mentioned, between times and to attend the Society of Artists meetings. This is a little watercolour, which isn't in the show because they're not really doing watercolours, but I thought it was a gem. And it's called The Landing Place. This was uh, drawn to my attention by Brian Jones, who's a local historian up in Richmond, who has, with an artist named Greg Hansel, followed Streeton's footprints diligently around the district, and I was absolutely indebted to their legwork um, for the map that I did in the catalogue and also for ideas like that the flag flying here on um, the courthouse, I think, no, old government house at Windsor um, may well have been for what we now call Australia Day, anniversary day or foundation day, Streeton would have called it, on the 26th of January, and that would have been one of those hot days. Earlier artists had painted up there before Streeton, of course, the convict Lysett, Conrad Martins, and Streeton would have almost certainly, in fact, I think I have to say, he would have certainly seen Julian Ashton's big black and white full-page drawing of the Hawkesbury in the picturesque Atlas of Australasia, that great multi-volume production that was put out for the centenary in the 1880s. Tom Roberts had also worked on the picturesque atlas, and the picturesque atlas described the Hawkesbury as the river of the artist and the tourist. And of course, you will have seen the lovely little corner of the exhibition with Condor's blossom pictures from Richmond. Um, here's one of them, just quickly, springtime from 1888. It was almost certainly Condor or Ashton who told Streeton about the Pitt family at North Richmond. You remember Clary Pitt was the one that warned Streeton about um, Hogan's intentions. And they lived at, Hun at Sunnyside up here. This is the Traveller's Rest, the hotel. Richmond's back this way. This is the road up to the Blue Mountains and Currajong. And most of those Hawkesbury pictures, the thinner, smaller ones, are done sort of either from here, looking back here, here, or from here, looking over here. So this is North Richmond Bridge. I'll show you on a map uh, where Purple Noon's from. It's from further along. Um, these sheds also and this big tree here appear in some of Streeton's pictures. Summer noon, Hawkesbury River, like the photo we saw, looks across the river from the Richmond side, and this time just downstream from that bridge. Um, the Traveller's Rest this time is hidden by the trees, and on their left is Sunnyside, up here. Come on, on their left. Yes, that's Sunnyside up there. This is one of the autumn pictures, the Upper Hawkesbury, or Hawkesbury River Autumn, and there are those sheds. And this is probably painted from near Sunnyside, looking back over the same wide sandbar from the opposite direction. And this, Michael and I found, actually says Clary Pitt Sunnyside on the back. Now, Condor would have met the Pitts when he was at North Richmond with his uncle in 1887 and probably knew the eldest son, John, who worked in the, lands, uh, the survey department at the same time as he, Condor, did. And um, this is the Surveyor's Camp by Streeton, also from 1896, which depicts George Pitt Sr., the surveyor's um, surveying party that Streeton went on with the family um, in, in 1896. I'm not sure whether in the hot summer bit or the cooler autumn bit. 
George Matchampet was the, the owner and the pater familias at Sunnyside. According to contemporary reports, he loved to have genius and intellectual men about him. Souter remembered he gave visiting artists the free run of the house and the orchard and told them to take a horse whenever they liked, presumably Streeton's borrowed horse. Streeton was about the same age as the sons and, um, and um, also in a letter that Mary the Eagle found as well from Clary Pitt and Fullwood discussing Streeton's time there, uh, they were obviously close even in later years. This is, a, oh, sorry. this is a photo of the hospitable Pitt family. That's George Senior, who loved having the intellectual men and artists about him. That's John, who kept the diaries, which his granddaughter has kindly let me read bits of. And unfortunately, of all these moustached men, which is Clary and which is George the architect, we don't know. They all look rather similar, and they all look rather similar to the fellow in the surveyor's camp. Then another son, again, as I say, one of those moustached fellows, lived not far from Sirius Cove. That was George Matcham Tertius Pitt. Um, and he designed a, a local Italian at Mansion, Belmont, for a Broken Hill mining magnate who was also about Streeton's age and who Streeton at least knew of or if didn't meet, which appears in some of the paintings I'll show you in a minute. Only a few of Streeton's Hawkesbury pictures show the sort of bucolic pastoral subjects of things like uh, Condor's blossom pictures. This is one which unfortunately wasn't available for loan, but I had to show you because I really love it and because it does show that he didn't just paint the river. It's looking across the river and that mansion, Belmont, is up there on Richmond Hill. This is Agnes Banks on the Richmond side of the river. And I wanted to show you quickly this wonderful pair of impressions. I'll just show you one after the other and then go back to the other one. This is the Australian Road where a man and a woman are going out of North Richmond um, up towards Carajong um, in that late summer or autumn blaze of dust and coming back in a road to Carajong, but in fact this is actually the road we're going back into Richmond Street and taking us with him. And there's the telegraph pole that, you know, enabled him to call for his canvases. Um, I wanted to talk um, just briefly. Oh, that's the map. Sorry, quickly. So that's where the blossom pictures are done. That's where Purple Noon's done, looking up this way. This is where the other Hawkesbury pictures were done. Here's the Traveller's Rest and Sunnyside. These, this is the road out. That's the mansion and that's the pumpkins. Oh, and that's the landing place. Sorry, that was so quick. I wanted to talk just quickly about the shape of the painting. And I do go into a bit more detail in the catalogue and I still don't really know the answer to this. As Mary mentioned, he was very interested in shapes of paintings. And it was part of the way he, the decorative impulse and part of the way, as Mary said, the sort of look and push of what matched the scene. He even painted on a tambourine, you remember, um, in the exhibition. Purple Noon is square um, and it's divided almost into four sort of sections. There's a red spot right in the middle and you get this sort of pastoral landscape section the uh, cliff and romantic section, the foreground section and the expanse of the blue water. It's, it's more technical than that. Michael will do it well. But this was a very conscious idea, this square vision where you're sitting 
right over the landscape, almost like a bird. Um, in contrast, I thought I had to somebody like Conrad Martins, who equally was painting an awe-inspiring view, but one where you were more removed from it. You're not, it's not exactly like you're leaning out a window. It's more like it's spread before you. Um, I've only got about one minute now, haven't I? <laughs> I just wanted to show you. Um, I was just going to talk very quickly, sorry about the poetic title. I should just read the bit of the poem, I suppose, um, where it comes from. And just remembering that it isn't an illustration at all. It's just this conjuring up of a po that poetic, um, great hidden poetry he knew was there and hadn't seen or felt. This is from Shelley. The sun is warm, the sky is clear, the waves are dancing fast and bright, blue isles and snowy mountains wear the purple noon's transparent might. Street and often took volumes of poetry with him on his trips. And in fact, if you look at the exhibition in which this painting uh, first had that poetic title, almost every, or probably a third at least, of the paintings in the show had titles from poetry, and they were all nearly all from an anthology, um, The Golden Treasury by Palgrave, which we know was one of his favourite things to take out with him. He was fascinated by the changing moods of nature, and just quickly, this, of course, is the same view from further up the river in a more silvery, cool light. Michael's pointed out that this bit is a later edition, which actually cuts out that kind of um, flinging you into the landscape feel, and he repeats it in this one here. He also, this one, although it probably probably was painted partly in the spot. I think may have been done more in the studio. This mountain is sort of compositional rather than actual. And this is a much more soft, voluptuous sort of painting style than that wonderful um, bravura strokes in um, um, Purple Noon. By mid-1896, Streeton was saving in earnest for his trip to Europe. The critical response to the works he showed in March, September and December that year all of which included Hawkesbury subjects, was all he'd hoped for. Nature has been rendered with passion, said the age, and with a sensuous charm that, like all strong emotions, communicates itself readily. The purple noon's transparent might was, they said, remarkable for its inner radiance. The river, the one I showed you before this, an exquisite transcript of silvery light. The purchases and include, from those exhibitions included the Art Gallery of New South Wales, the National Gallery of Victoria, and several influential private collectors. Bernard Hall, who was not a huge fan of contemporary Australian art, still told the gallery's trustees here that Purple Noon was, character, was in the class of the best work by the best men and that the gallery should hurry up and buy something from Streeton before he left for Europe. In those years leading up to Australian Federation Street and had found along the Hawkesbury a landscape that linked historical achievement with future promise of this expansive land. And finally, I guess rivers have always been a source of visual delight and metaphor for artists. And here in Australia, the driest continent, I think a painting like this can have a special emotional significance for us that, if anything, is more potent now than it was for Streeton. Thank you.